Welcome to Coffee, Grief, and Gratitude, a podcast by Coffee and Grief. I'm Annie Gudger, and this is my amazing daughter, Maria Gibson. We're a mom-daughter team who talk about grief. We started this podcast to learn more about grief, to become part of the conversation in normalizing grief. We're not looking for answers because there really aren't any. We're just looking for conversation. My biggest grief was being widowed when I was 28 and pregnant with Maria's older brother. Everything in my world changed. Eventually, for the good, and that took time. Eventually, there was Scott, my fabulous husband, then Maria, our amazing daughter. I'm fond of saying that grief is the source of my superpowers. It's where I learned to not take time for granted. It's where I learned compassion and love in a bigger, deeper way. It's where I learned to be a beauty seeker, a joy seeker. I wrote my way through grief. I filled stacks of journals. Years later, I wrote a memoir. The fifth chamber is a story of love and loss and more love. The fifth chamber, as in, if your heart had a fifth chamber, what would you fill it with? It's my grief story and how I found my way back to me, how I found my way back to love and a beautiful life. It came out in September and we'll put links in it for in the show notes to for where you can buy it. And once you buy it, if you would review it on Amazon and Goodreads, I would be incredibly appreciative. For me, I was raised by my mom here who was grieving. Grief was very normalized in our home. It's one of the things the past few years that I've realized is when we don't share our griefs, they become secrets and tear people up. But in sharing them, we can connect to each other on a really deep level. Over the past few years, I've lost multiple people in my life, including two grandparents, a few horses, and a couple cats. I feel many deaths in my life have been major benchmarks in how I view the world. We like to say that grief is transformative. You don't need to stay stuck in the hard parts. Grief is one of life's certainties. It allows us to connect to each other's humanity. If you're here in the early stages of grief, we're here to say it's hard. We're here to say to be kind to yourself and thank yourself for showing up, for being curious about what grief can look like in its wholeness. These conversations aren't a prescription. We're just here offering a little bit of hope. So as we like to say, grab your coffee and let's talk. Today, we're delighted to welcome Anne Belchelder, who will read a piece of her writing and then we'll be in conversation with her. Hi, Anne. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're so happy to have you with us. I'm going to read Anne's bio first. Anne is an advocate for women's wisdom, human compassion, and ending the stigma around depression and addiction. She recently published her memoir, Craving Spring, A Mother's Quest, A Daughter's Depression, and the Greek Myth That Brought Them Together. She served as editor of Fiber Arts Magazine for 10 years, was guest curator for the Atchville Art Museum, where she designed and developed contemporary art exhibits featuring internationally known artists, and was director of special events for the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and earned an MSW in psychotherapy, and has been practicing mindfulness since 2004. She is the mother of two adult children and lives with her husband, in Asheville, North Carolina. So Anne, what will you be reading for us today? I'd like to read three passages about grief from my memoir, Craving Spring. Two of them are short and one of them is longer. 
my book is about when my teenage daughter was suffering from depression and addiction. And that same year, my mother died. So the first passage is when I entered my mother's room just after she died. In the room, I found my mother serenely present, but not present. Still lying in her single bed, the same bed that had been mine when I was growing up. Never one to throw anything useful away, mom insisted on keeping that bed as she and my dad moved from house to house over the years. She looked serene with her white hair floating below the familiar wooden headboard. An old pink blanket from my childhood covered her bony frame. Her mouth, slack-jawed and open, didn't move. No air filled her lung or raised her chest, and the color had drained from her cheeks. The taut skin on her face was an ivory color that was still beautiful in this quiet morning light. The vibrant, funny, tough woman I loved was gone, but when I put my hand on her shoulder, her back was still warm where the stagnant blood had pooled inside her body. I crawled onto the single bed, placed my arm over her stiff body, and gently sang to her, as if she was the child now as if we could both find comfort in that bed. After losing my mother, I drifted through months of sadness. The confusion I'd felt about our relationship was heavy with loneliness. I had nowhere to place my affection, hurt, or adoration. I didn't want to talk to anyone. Instead, I spent hours writing in my journal. Sometimes I let myself cry. The second passage is about complicated grief, the kind of ongoing loss that parents often experience when a child is suffering from active addiction. Although Al-Anon stressed that parents didn't cause and can't cure addiction, I wasn't so sure. Whenever I worried aloud to friends that I might be to blame for Olivia's problems, they were quick to be supportive. You did the best you could, they'd say. This only made me furious. To me, that line always sounded like a cheap attempt to wipe away parental sins. At least if I was partially to blame, I reasoned, I was also powerful enough to save her. My need for my daughter to get better followed me like a vapor. It hid in my bed and seeped into my clothes, weighing me down under a sea of sadness. Now and then, I'd catch the sweet scent of hope before it vanished, but mostly the vapor was putrid. Sometimes it smelled sharp and rancid, like the time a mouse died in our wall behind the TV. Sometimes it was sour or stale, like rotting food, a reminder of my daughter's gradual decline. I was always on edge because I knew I was smelling death. At any moment, Olivia could overdose. She could die. Olivia was still in college and attending AA meetings, but I could tell she was fragile and struggling. Every time she went into a tailspin on the phone with me, I wrote it right along with her. I was not detached or immune to emotional entanglements with my child, the way our Al-Anon leaders encouraged us to be. I was not clean. I had a burning desire to play a significant role in saving her. I wanted redemption for my failure to protect her. And I would stop at nothing until I satisfied those cravings. And then the last passage is when I began to understand how my self-blame about my daughter's addiction was triggered by an unresolved loss I'd had before she was born. After my second miscarriage, I collected all my thoughts about cute baby clothes and names to consider, packed everything into a mental box, and bolted the lid. The following summer, after a frustrating year of trying, I finally became pregnant again. I was thrilled when we passed the first trimester, 
without incident, but my doctor recommended that I quit my consulting work with a local ad agency and stay at home to take it easy. I was happy to comply, ready to do anything to have a healthy birth. At five months pregnant, I woke up one night to go to the bathroom and felt a gush of fluid pour from inside me into the toilet. I walked to the bedroom, flipped on the overhead light to wake Henry, and said, my water broke too early. It's over. Henry bolted up from sleep, stood naked by his side of the bed for a moment, then started pulling on his pants. I'd never seen him move so fast. You don't know that, he said. Get dressed. We're going to the hospital right now. It's over, I whispered. We raced to the hospital, and a nurse immediately took me to a room. My doctor arrived to examine me. Someone was talking on the phone down the hall, but otherwise the unit was dead quiet. I noticed I was breathing in the stale smell of a hospital after it labored all day with emergencies and before the morning cleaning crew arrived. I'm sorry, but this fetus can't survive now, the doctor said. I'd already prepared myself for the worst, but Henry's eyes became fixed. His body wouldn't. Will you do a DNC? I asked. Now I'll give you something that will help induce labor. I didn't realize I would have to deliver a child who would never live. There would be no Lamaze classes, no perineal massage, no epidural, no baby announcements. After months of bed rest, there would be nothing to show for my efforts, only empty arms to take home. The doctor turned the lights down in the room and we waited for my contractions to begin. The pain came on fast. I felt something searing and then ripping. It was as if a battle was raging inside me, the drugs trying to eliminate a foreign element and my body refusing to let go. I was trying not to scream, but couldn't help gasping and crying. Then suddenly the pain and the birth was over. It's a boy, the doctor said, after a nurse cleaned our baby and wrapped him in a blue and pink striped receiving blanket. He probably died coming through the birth canal. Do you want to hold him? No, we both said. In my experience, women who have stillbirths often do better if they hold their baby. It can help with the grief process, the doctor said. Henry and I were both crying. We were still unsure, but then I reached out for our son. He was surprisingly heavy in my arms. I looked at his tiny face, his straight black hair, his eyes closed shut. Our boy was beautiful, almost too beautiful. Then something happened so quickly that I didn't have time to wonder if I was crazy. A bright light engulfed the room. In front of me, I saw a path with a row of trees on either side. A white fire, shimmering and brilliant, consumed the trees. Even more uncanny was this. Despite my tears, for a brief instant, I also felt blissful. It was as if I could feel myself smiling inside. Then everything went back to being an ordinary hospital room again. I remember thinking, if such deep sorrow and complete joy can exist at the same moment, there must be a God. I didn't know if this was God or me speaking. I didn't know if I imagined this experience or if it was some kind of epiphany. But I did know it had something to do with birthing our baby, with me being a mother, with what was to come. I didn't tell my husband. It seemed too strange to admit to anyone. Every morning for a week after I got home, I cried in the shower as I watched useless milk leak from my breast onto the tile floor and disappear down the drain. A mailman delivered a new copy of American Baby magazine to my house. The issue focus said, the joys of having a newborn. The second issue arrived a month later. That cover announced, now your baby is one month old. This was part of a marketing campaign, I realized. They mailed a magazine to every pregnant woman who came into the hospital, whether she wanted it or not. 
About the time I'd stopped crying every day, an official death certificate arrived in the mail from the hospital with my son's tiny footprints on a note card. Above the print, it simply said, baby boy. So he had been real after all, I thought. Months after the stillbirth, I'd find myself driving to do an errand, stopping my car in a parking lot, and sitting catatonic behind a wheel for 30 minutes. Or maybe it was an hour. I couldn't tell. One morning, I remember sitting on the side of my bed, staring at the window. I had a kitchen knife in my hand. It wasn't very sharp, but I held it against my wrist, thinking it didn't matter if I was alive or dead. For years, I secretly tortured myself, worrying that I was to blame for my pregnancy failures. Maybe I moved around too much or didn't eat the right things, I thought. If I'd only had a body made to carry these children to term, maybe they wouldn't have had to die. My unmoorings, I called them, little spirits whose mother couldn't manage to give them a sure footing on dry land. They had suffered enough. I would carry the weight of regret for them. It was the least I could do. Regret, regret became a temporary solution to a long-term problem. It kept me focused on all that went wrong, all that could have been, and all that was lost. If I immersed myself in regret, I could ignore the fear at the bottom of my heart, the secret that I might still be inadequate. Once I gave birth to my children, Austin and Olivia, I promised myself I would do everything in my power to be the best mom for them. But it never felt like enough. When it was clear that Olivia was struggling with bulimia in high school and then later in college when she became addicted to drugs, I held myself in contempt, an emotional debtor's prison. I became a junkie for regret. Oh, Anne, that's so beautiful. I love that you read those three pieces to give us these three different snapshots of of all of all different griefs. Um, and I like how they I like how they layer together. I appreciate that you started with your mom and and then went and went backwards. It's really lovely. Yeah, I it's um it was interesting because I didn't realize a lot of this until I started writing the book. So much of that process um, was revealed to me as the story unfolded, as I was trying to un unravel what had happened to our family, what was my role in it, what was going on. I, I had several layers of grief going on at the same time, but I didn't really understand the connection between what had happened to me in the past and how that was triggering a, a post-traumatic stress sort of feeling with my daughter became um started going through depression well that's fascinating as a writer that of course resonates with me and um you know and as we're writing we don't know the end of the story until we write our way through it exactly um you said in the tee up you mentioned complicated grief so mm. could you say a little bit more about what that means for our listeners well, I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that when there is an ongoing situation of, um, you know, there's no final situation when someone's in addiction, they're still alive, but they're also gone. They're, they're kind of lost. And my experience was that I couldn't quite resolve the grief and the anxiety it just was going on and on and on and on so it it was compounded in a way um, without that any kind of resolution 
as my daughter was drifting farther and farther away from me and into drugs. So I think also um, the, the loss that I had with her was anxiety also, but there was a deep sense of loss of innocence, loss of family life, loss of time with her as a mother and daughter, loss of communication and connection with her. There was this realization that um, I had so much regret as a mother that I couldn't help her and I couldn't save her. So that was also complicating things. Well, and I appreciate that you that you just named all those things because part of why we started doing this is um, to expand grief literacy, right? To give grief a microphone, to talk about the fact that grief is so much more than what we traditionally think it being the death of a beloved. Grief touches everything. Um, and you just gave us a number of places where grief can land. So thank you for that. Well, also in the eighties, when I had all the, I had three miscarriages and a stillbirth and I spent six months in bed rest with both of my children that I ended up having. Um, but with the miscarriage back then, nobody talked about miscarriage as death. It was just a medical thing that you got over and you went on and there was no attempt to um, understand it as that kind of grief. So I think for me, it was just, I kind of buried it and didn't resolve it, didn't work on it, didn't understand my regret. I mean, I was sad, of course, and maybe went to therapy about it or whatever, but there wasn't a real sense of that as a death, as a loss, the same kind of loss you would have if you had a, a, a live child. So we've made some improvements. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because it is, it is definitely, I mean, it is talked about now and, um, and there are plenty of groups that do talk about it and do support, um, people with, um, excuse me, I have a cold and I'm trying not to cough <laughs> in between. Um, so, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad I can, that I can say we've made some improvements since the eighties. I feel this similarly, like so much of what I was looking for back when my husband died, wasn't available. And there's so much more now. And for that, I'm grateful because the more we all share our stories, the more other people feel seen and heard and they get to see themselves in some of our story. And the other thing I think with um, one area that's really not understood as far as grief is concerned is addiction and that process for parents. There's a lot of discussion about people who are in active addiction and recovery and all those kinds of things, but not a lot of focus on the parents of people who are experiencing addiction, because that that is an ongoing grief that I think a lot of people don't, even who are going through it, don't understand. And it's really easy to get caught up in what did I do wrong? What's how can I fix it? What's happening? And it's it's not really a something that is in your control to fix. So it feels you feel really helpless, like you would with any other kind of death or grief. Um, you go through a lot of the same kind of things. But I think what's missing and what I really appreciate about, about your podcast is the the lack of compassion, the lack of understanding for what people are going through. And I think the more we can share our stories of that experience, the more we will build compassion and understanding so that um, there's not that sense of isolation that people feel often when they're grieving. 
Absolutely. That's, that's one of our big goals. Yeah. I was, I was curious here listening to where's your daughter now? Is she still in active addiction? Is she still no, alive? She, well, she's, she's fine and, and very well. She um, is in recovery. She's the, the book took me about 10 years to write. I you know this was all going on when she first started, when she was in high school, it was like mm, 10, 2010 or 11 she ended up going to rehab in 2014. That same year that she went to rehab and I learned about her drug addiction, my mother died, our dog died. I mean, it was just like a horrible year. You know, my husband had an accident and almost died. Um, so it was just, a, a, that's the year that I kind of wrote about it in my book. But it really took me um, a long time to write about. And in that process, she went into recovery she um, is uh, went back to college, got a degree in health and wellness. She wants to be a health and wellness coach now. She's, you know, she's terrific. She's great. And she also um, very kindly read my book and said, yep, you can go ahead and publish this. And I really support you. It's hard for me to hear this, to read this, but I think it's really important to stop the stigma about mental health issues. And so she's been terrific in that way in fact she even wrote the epilogue so oh that's great so, i was just thinking like wouldn't it be awesome for her to do some of writing from her point of view too so i love that she wrote your epilogue yeah we did talk about that i said well you know this is my version of our story and someday maybe you'll write your version but would you be interested in writing the epilogue because a lot of people the first thing people ask is how's your daughter how's she doing and so she did Wow. That's great. That is because it is like, it's, um, it's her story and your story and your part in the story and your part in her story. So I love that she wrote some of it too. Yeah. What was kind of the most helpful type of support you received in those hard years you were just talking about? Um, I would say, of course, friends who were willing to listen to me just talk about whatever was going on and would encourage me by saying, you're not a broken record. You can talk as much as you want. It's okay. I mean, a lot of people I think were anxious about what to say as as you would with any kind of a, uh, a grief situation. But, um, and in fact, with addiction, it's even harder because Nobody comes around with a casserole. No, you don't get any cards. And people, and some people, maybe not close friends, but some people are afraid of mental illness and will, you know, avoid you. Um, and so there's there's a real feeling of of isolation and confusion, I think, on the part of a parent. So um, anyone who is willing to say, "Hey, I I may not understand exactly what you're going through, but I I want to hear what." You're what you're thinking and how you're doing. And um, that was the most helpful just to be witness to my grief. Yeah. And I, I think in any grief, there is that the need to say the same thing over and over. Um, mm -hmm. That seems to be uh, a common thread for most people. And so it's a beautiful thing when you have those people around you who just listen, right? They don't have to add anything or say anything. 
It's just being witnessed right. as you're in your process. I think the difference though with addiction is that not only are you grieving, but you're also anxious. There's an incredible amount of fear. And so rather than simply recounting this horrible thing that has happened to you, you're also anticipating more horrible things to come. And that that was really one of the things that I tried in my book to talk about is that whenever I got whenever my thoughts got caught up into regretting the past or worrying about the future, I knew I wasn't in the present. And the only place where I could really be helpful to my daughter was in the present moment. So um, that's a little different than than grieving about my mom or grieving about my father's death or that kind of thing. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, it absolutely is. I haven't said this on here, but I have a sister who has attempted suicide a couple times and, yeah. um, and she is still with us, which is great. Um, but I, I resonate with that because it is, it's a very different, it's a very different experience. And likewise, I mean, I had a lot of worry um, over what was going to happen and how was she going to be and how are we going to support her? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a different kind of grief. It is, but it's still loss. It I is. mean, you're still feeling sad about, about the, the dream of, of the relationship you thought you had or, or how you thought things were going to go. And that's another lesson I think that I tried to talk about in the book is, is being, present to change and that change is going to happen whether we want it to or not. And we suffer when we try to have change stop. So being, Absolutely. Able, being able to pivot, being able to, um, to address whatever is going on at the moment, I think was really key to my healing also. Yeah. You, I was just going to ask you like, how has grief changed you? So are there some specific things that you could share with our listeners? Um, I think the most important thing is that it broke me wide open. I really have so much compassion for anyone who's going through any kind of grief or any kind of struggle with addiction or loss or those kinds of things. I really feel, I feel that I didn't really understand um, before what that felt like. And I think that it propelled me to tell my story, which is wasn't something I originally wanted to do or set out to do. But like you, I wrote in journals forever. And then when the journals started becoming more descriptive and, and more, um, maybe I started doing some writing classes and be kind of turned into chapters. And then I wanted to share my story. And I think that the grief really encouraged me to not only have compassion, but also to, to open myself and to be vulnerable and authentic with other people about my experience and not hold back on what that felt like or what struggles I was going through or how it, how I didn't do things right or whatever. So I think the the compassion and the sharing were the two things that changed me with that experience. Yeah, I do think that grief is, it humanizes us. Exactly. Right? If we let it. Um. So is there anything that you like to say or how 
do you like to support? Do you support like other parents of children that are in addiction or um, anything in that realm? It's not really a question. Well, I think, you know, I think just to acknowledge how hard it is and to, to be present and willing to sit with someone who wants to talk about it. I think that that's the best way that anyone could be supportive. Um, and then, as I said before, sharing our stories and being willing to be open that way, I think is, is another way to really support someone. This is totally different, but I'm thinking about it as I'm listening to you. Like, did you, were you a writer before or was it your journal keeping? And then this, this strong desire to tell you, tell your story that turned you into a writer. I was, I, I was an editor for a while. And so I was around writing, but I didn't, I was not a creative writer myself, but I always, I've been, I've kept a journal since I was 15. So I would scribble away. And, you know, in the beginning, when you write journals, it's all just complain, 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 you know, and then you get a little older and you start being more reflective and you maybe, you know, and so the journaling um, for me became a, a creative expression of um, more poetic, I guess, if you will, as I went through this whole process. And so even though I wasn't publishing or writing creatively that way, I was writing uh, in my journal in, in, in that kind of way. And I think the other thing that was so interesting to me that I wanted to touch on in my book was the kind of out-of-body out of experience you feel with grief, that kind of sense. I think I, I, I read a little bit about that in, when I was going through that stillbirth. But you just, I just, sometimes I would just have these experiences that just seemed like um, not a dream or a premonition or anything like that, but they just was a little bit of magical realism that I was experiencing um, because of the level of grief and maybe the hormones were kicking in, whatever was going on at the time. But I, so I wanted to write about that in my book too, that that kind of, you can also feel like, you can almost feel like you're going crazy sometimes in grief. And you wonder what what's going on with me? What why am I thinking these things? Why am I having these dreams? I would I would imagine things that were just I would imagine coyotes coming to circle the house, or I would imagine just strange things. And um I just wanted that to be normalized also, that that was part of that grief process, is that we do kind of in a way lose touch with reality, but we also dig deeper into reality, if you will. Um, and are more conscious and awake in a, in a very unique way when we're grieving. Yeah. I thank you for sharing that because I think it's really important. I love that you, what you just said that, cause there is this there, it is part of it where you can feel like your reality is so shifted. It's so not what it was before. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you, I know for me, having never experienced anything that traumatic, so suddenly, um, I had very similar, like, am I, I mean, I don't like the term crazy, but like, you know, am I, am I just losing it here? Right. And, and I do think that the, you know, what we experience as reality, it just shifts 
right? Mm-hmm. And then that that's the veil between here and and other lives gets really thin. And the way I've most experienced that is through my grief. Exactly. Um, and other people do too. And so it's a, I appreciate you saying it. It's a good thing for people to hear. Um, I have a, a dear friend who has this beautiful podcast. And it's one of the things she talks about is like that we don't talk about that part, right? Where we're questioning our reality mm-hmm. and our sanity when really we're, we're deeply grieving. Exactly. And, and it's from, from a creative standpoint, I was beginning to write about that more and more. And that's, I think when stories kind of started developing and chapters started coming together. And then I decided during the pandemic, I decided to put, actually put a book together, not really with the idea of publishing it, but for me, because I needed to understand what had happened and what, what, what was happening to me as a mother and the stages that I was going through. So, so I think that um, I just, perhaps because I wasn't worried about being, having a writer's platform or whatever, I just didn't have any hesitation to write whatever came up. And I think that was the real beauty of it. I wasn't worried about who was looking over my shoulder. I didn't let anyone in my family read what I'd written until I was all done. And it was, I just really went deeply into myself for about three years to pull all that together and just kind of disappear and go right. So it was a really healing process for me. Well, and I, I, um, it's so good for people to hear that, right? So uh, Maria and I run a writing group twice a year called Write Your Grief Out. And Mm. it's one of the things we definitely talk about is just like, give yourself the freedom to get it on the page right? It's, exactly. it's, you're not in school. No one's checking your homework. You know, we want to, we set it up so that people can um, experience their grief in some new ways and that it, the product doesn't matter, right? Because when we get to the true story, I think, and I believe this so strongly as a writer, it's when I don't think about the product. I'm just thinking about Absolutely. getting words on the page and I'll do something with them later. It's so exactly. Yeah. It's good for people and, you know, for people who, because I hear this regularly, people, one who like, I want to write a book or people who do write, who don't see themselves as writers. And I'm like, if you're writing, you're a writer, right? Uh-huh. So I always want people to hear that. And, um, and that's, you're a per- just a fine example of that. And the value of just letting yourself experience yourself and the words on the page. And then what comes later is what comes later. Exactly. So with all that, is there anything else as we're getting close to wrapping up here? Is there anything that you'd like to add or anything that bubbled up for you while we're talking that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, Again, I would just like to reiterate that um, loss and death and illness is part of life. And it's really important that we can acknowledge and share that experience with each other however not everybody's a writer not everybody's going to do it that way but i think it's really important to um help each other heal and one of the ways i found was helpful to me was to read memoirs when i was going through this and that's one of the reasons i wrote my memoir was to help other people not feel so alone but also to destigmatize the whole notion of mental illness or grief or addiction, those kinds of things, because I think that um, it's the one thing, that kind of stigma and that kind of fear is what separates us. 
And so it's really important, I think, to find common ground so we can have compassion for each other. Absolutely. That's so beautifully said. Well, Anne, we want to thank you so much for being with us today and having this beautiful and tender conversation. Well, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. It's been our pleasure. So um, a way you can connect with us is by on email or on Facebook. We have a private Facebook group called Coffee and Grief Community. We would love to have you join us. Um, we host Coffee Talks the first Thursday of every month. They're similar to what we did today, except it is five curated readers. There's no question and answer time afterwards. They just come and read their pieces. Um, they tell their personal grief story. And uh, there's a Zoom link on our Facebook page. It changes every month. So you need to go to the page to see the current Zoom link. If there's something you'd like us to talk about, please email us at coffeeandgrief at gmail.com. Um, and we always like to wrap up by saying, be good to yourself, be kind to your heart, drink plenty of water, do something kind for yourself. And if you have the bandwidth, do something kind for another. So with that, we'll say goodbye. We love you. Please come back and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.